Well, good day, guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker, and we're here because of our proud partner, Rafa, who are helping us put the podcast together this year. Rafa Women's 100 is just around the corner. It's returning Sunday, the 17th of September, one day, one community, 100 kilometers. It's not about the distance. It's not about the terrain. It's about celebrating women in cycling going the distance together. It's a global connection and a shared experience. The question is, female listeners, are you in? Now, Life in the Peloton is about exploring the other Pelotons, and this time I'm going far out, way back to the bike couriers, the messengers, that old bunch. You know who I'm talking about? Well, a good friend of mine, actually, Andy White, is someone I've known since I started cycling, and I remember out at club racing here in the outskirts of Melbourne, way back when I was young, he rolls up on this pristine looking vintage bike, ready to race. When we're all sort of getting fixated on carbon bikes and the latest trends, he was all about the culture of cycling and just looking very cool. Well, Andy, he was one of them, a bike career I'm talking about. He worked as a bike courier all over the world, in London, New York, San Francisco, Vancouver, Melbourne, you name it. He was everywhere. And he knows what it takes to ride through a city, a hectic city, getting to a spot very fast. And over the years, I loved hearing the stories from Andy because it was such an interesting community, a really competitive community. And of course, I was wondering, do these guys race? Well, the answer is Alley Cats, underground bike messenger racing scene. It's where Red Hook is sort of more from. Fixed gear bikes riding around cities to checkpoints. No brakes sometimes, in the dark, no lights. Madness. I was so intrigued. Now, last week, I was away with my family up in the north of Australia. I sort of escaped a bit of cold and got into the sun, and I didn't take my bike with me. It was just a little bit too hard basket with the whole family. But of course, I put my runners in and my AG1. And it was my daily morning routine last week up north, up in the morning, hit a 10K run up. I'd come home, I'd have my AG1 in the fridge, bang, get it straight in, grab the kids, hit the surf. What a start to the day. It was perfect. AG1 is more than just greens. It's a comprehensive blend of vitamins and minerals, probiotics, and superfood complexes. It's an all-in-one which helps provide digestive support, immunity support, metabolism, energy, and stress support. I'm having it because it makes me feel good. It sets me up for the day and I really like the simple routine it gets me into. It's something I look forward to when I wake up each morning. I grab my shaker, add some water, a scoop of AG1, drink it down, it's that simple. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, the AG1 is giving you a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go across to drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. Well, now, guys, in this episode, Andy, who is better known to most as Fixo, he's going to help us unpack what life is like as a bike messenger, what it takes, you know, the bikes that they use, the skills they have, fitness, if it does require that, but then the racing, how they run those races, the rules, are there any, but then what it's actually like to do one of them. What I've also been enjoying recently, guys, is an interesting product coming from Pillar. Now, Pillar is a sports micronutrition company started here in Australia and developing products that intersect between pharmaceutical intervention and sports supplements for athletes. 
The easiest way to describe it is electrolytes, carbohydrates, those things, they're the products that help you get to the finish line. The role of pillar micronutrition is to help you get to the start line, feeling your best over and over again. Now, I've been using the triple magnesium. I've been using it for just over a month now, and I've been taking some days off to see if I can really notice the difference. And I can really see when I do have the triple magnesium before bed, how much it's changed the game for my sleep. Recovery and sleep devices will show you too. Watch and track your HRV and see the difference it makes. I'm not wearing that stuff anymore. I just use the good old fashioned technique on monitoring how I feel when I rudely get woken up by my kids at six in the morning. The first thing I notice is I wake up from a deep, deep slumber, but very quickly, I notice I get up feeling much more rested and not grumpy, you know, I feel fresh. It's been fantastic. It's easy to drink, it tastes nice, and I've been taking it with water in my shaker about 30 minutes before bed each night. If you'd like to try Pillar today, head to pillarperformance.shop and use the code LITP for 15% off for your first purchase. Or for our USA listeners, head to thefeed.com slash pillar. Go across and get yourself one. This is a no-brainer, guys. Good sleep, good recovery, and it's that simple, really. Triple magnesium, no tricks about it. There's stacks of stuff over there, so check it out while you're there too. That's pillarperformance.shop. Now, guys, just before we get to the episode, Fixo is the man of the community, and obviously he's moved on from his bike messenger days, and he has his very own alicat for the masses, as he likes to call it, the Melbourne Roubaix. You may have heard of it. I'm sure you have. You may have even done it once or twice, or all 16 editions. It's been around for a while. It's amazing. I did my first edition this year, and I can see why there are thousands every year who turn up to do it. It was such a great day. There's so much to cover with Andy, and he's such a great storyteller. I really enjoyed sitting down with him. Guys, I know you're going to enjoy this one. Are you ready? Mitch, I was born ready. Well, that is the voice of Andy White, aka Fixomatosis. Well, most more recently known as Fixo. It's actually not more recently. It's for a long time. It's isn't a it? long time. The fact that you know Fixomatosis says how long <laughs> we've known each other. Very few people would know. Obviously, it's a terrible brand name. So I made this savvy choice to like chop because all the best brand names, four letters. You could argue five, but four. <laughs> That's what we're going to end up talking about eventually today is about. I guess where this brand has gone, Fixo, Fixomatosis, and the evolution of track bikes. I want to use the word track bikes, fixed geared bikes. But Andy, you sort of cut your teeth way back on a fixed gear bike. And now you can correct me if I'm wrong. As a as a bike messenger, as a courier, is that, is that how it all started? Absolutely. If I think about my introduction, I remember the first time I saw the Tour de France on TV was in Jerain in the 90s. And I grew up through school not even knowing that bike racing was a thing you could do. I'd always ridden mountain bikes, always had a bike, loved bikes. And it wasn't until I travelled South America with a mate, got to London, and I'd thought about this idea of being a bike courier. Went into a shop and at the time I was making really good money as a marketing assistant mm. and they told me how much the good couriers earn and I thought ah I can make more than that how did you ever how did you think of an idea of being a bike courier we just saw someone you, whiz by one day exactly, that is the life exactly and I'd actually seen a snippet on wild world of sports of the <laughs> cycle messenger world championships and I think it was one of the early ones it was in Washington DC in the 90s and it was just like an oddball snippet like you might see like we see them it's a very different format now with social media 
I know you've spoken about how going to the Sydney Olympics is what mm. got you down your rabbit hole of cycling. It was that. And I'd see him whizzing around and I've, I'd asked a really scruffy looking guy in Melbourne who was one. And he gave me, I got crickets out of him. I'm like, ah. Oh. So, I put, I put it in the bin, went again to London and yeah, I got, uh, like I, I thought about it, but it wasn't until my marketing contract had ended. I'm like, right. I've run out of money. What am I going to do? So I picked up Time Out and in the back of Time Out, it had ad, bike couriers wanted, good English required. Oh, perfect. Um, well, I think I've got good English. No, no bike skills required. Good, good. And look, honestly, this is a big part of it because really bike skills aren't a part of the job. Right, secondary. Secondary. It's really showing up every day, okay. doing what you're told is really the, the job. The aspect that's fun and interesting for me- was the, was the riding bikes and the, the culture that I discovered as becoming one. But like I said, very simple. I went in that day and I was working that afternoon. It was very straightforward because really it's an unskilled labour job that has been glamorised because mm-hmm. you get to ride bikes. Yeah. Well, I guess what well, you're probably wondering, everyone's out there wondering, why are we talking about bike crewing? Well, I think it's the evolution of where your life went in bike crewing and that's what we're going to talk about. But I think for me this year it's been about uncovering all the different pelotons and bike couring and you know bike messenger that is another peloton it's a quite a niche peloton i've sort of scratched the surface a little bit with you and understood hang on there's a bit of a little cult group that they sort of wear a little bit of lycra sometimes and they wear like you know a bag and there's a bit of like the european culture that flows through it as well but it's a completely different thing we've seen a little bit in the in the Red Hook crits, you know, that yeah, sort of faded that, in there. That came out of bike messenger culture, absolutely. Yeah. But you've got to take me right back to let's just unpack what a day-to-day sort of life of a bike career is and run me through that life. You know, go back into those days when you were doing it. Sort of, I guess it was, what, early 2000s, around yeah. the year 2000? Well, because it's different now, isn't it? It's absolutely different. And I'd say the gig economy and the nature of, information transfer, Mm. emailing, has obviously cut out what, when I started, they referred to the golden days (laughs) where they were delivering documents in the same way people would send emails. And obviously, the the more the priority of the document, the more you could charge for it. So, bike careers, I would say in the late 90s, could actually make really, really good money. At least in Melbourne, I'm only going off what I was told. But to back up, September 11, I was in London, had witnessed uh, the towers coming down and it felt like there's a, a lot of uncertainty. I wasn't working, didn't have any money. Two weeks later, I'd seen this ad in time out and I started working as a bike career. And I remember the first day I, my dispatcher said, right into Liverpool Street Station. And I did. And I was calling on and he said, okay, just stand by. When you say calling on, what on a walkie-talkie? So, you're, yeah, you've got a two-way radio. Okay. Uh, and th- this is also a, a thing that's changed. And city to city, country to country, two-way radios was how we would communicate. You'd also have motorbike couriers and then have pushbike couriers. You'd also have van couriers depending on – it's logistics, mm. logistics, right? But the bike couriers were the, the faster inner city couriers. And I remember just waiting for my first job, like waiting what, on and a I corner, could, just waiting yeah, on your phone. I was sitting yeah. on a like on the pillar at the train station with my bike leaning up and just waiting. And I would call on every two minutes, and my dispatcher would say, 
thanks, 2-4, just stand by. <laughs> and I, I was just so keen. And <laughs> Give me something. Like, uh, like 40 minutes later, he calls me and says, okay, I've got a job. It's here to there. And he was very formal. English Dave, he was known as, very formal with the way he would deliver instructions over the radio, the call signs. If I didn't use the correct terminology, he would correct me. That was my introduction. So my first job, I'm running like full gas to pick up this first delivery. And then I'm, I'm like, I've got it. I've got it. He goes, uh, the correct terminology is POB, parcel on board. And then you would say where you are, the postcode and where you're headed. And then he said to me, okay, stand by. I'm like, stand by again. And look, this is my entry in and obviously – like a lot of things in a lot of Palatons, you start out at the worst company. And I didn't know that until I left. And I remember Dave, when I told him I'm leaving, he says, yeah, oh, you'll never make more money anywhere else. And I said, Dave, if that's true, you'll take me back tomorrow. He's like, <laughs> that's right. Oh, well, good luck. And and it was only until I made the jump, much like in the in yeah. Palatons, you change teams. You're like, actually, there is, there is more potential outside of what I currently know. But it is scary too, because you're letting go of something. So- Uh, Once I established myself in London and then I was meeting other bike couriers and one night uh, I heard about, I'd heard about these bike races at night Mm. and they were from a pub in London and you just meet there and it was very informal. After Friday, everyone's had a few pints and then someone to throw a race. And that was my first experience with hearing about alley cats. And then one of my friends, an Aussie guy living in London, he won one. I'm like, well, it can't be that hard if my mate won one because obviously I'm, I'm relatively competitive. And, yeah, then I was just amped to do my first one. Well, just before we get into the Alley Cats, because I still want to sort of set up exactly what we're talking about here, just in case anyone doesn't know, because I'm still learning it myself. When we're talking about a, a bike messenger, typically you guys are riding track bikes, fixed gear bikes, no brakes. Is that is that the necessity why do you guys do that i think that what you are perceiving is the glamour again the, the glamorized version a postcard of in people's imagination of what's a bike courier what mm. are they wearing and that is there's certainly some but i would say in the bulk and this is like when i worked in new york most of them ride like hard rubbish mountain bikes target uh, bikes target bikes and again it's because they're not actually into cycling they're just like this is a job I can do, I can make money. Now, to, to bring you back to my discovery of track bikes, I had uh, I was riding a Trek 4500, which was my mountain bike that I bought, loved this bike, and it, I just had to use it for work because I didn't have another bike. And within two months, I had destroyed mm. the drivetrain because you're riding every day, you're riding it in the filth. At the end of the day, you don't- You're not really going to clean it. You're yeah. not going to clean it. And I didn't have an op- a, like a workshop to clean it. It was obviously running like a dog and I wasn't mechanically as minded as I was I am now. And I, the mechanic said, oh, you need new chain rings. I'm like, new chain rings? There's a hundred quid. Still running like a dog. Oh, you need a new chain. Great. There's another 20 quid. Still run like a dog. Oh, you need a new cassette. So all of this money spent finally running reasonably. And I said to him, how often am I going to have to do this? He said, well, probably every two months if you keep riding your bike the way you do. And that's why bike couriers ride right. single speeds. I'm like, oh, I get it. Cheaper. One drivetrain, heavier duty track chain, just doesn't wear out, doesn't have to worry about mis-shifting. Mm. That's where I- No just, cables, no brake pads. Look, the whole no brakes thing was definitely a- There was an element of cool points, mm. definitely. And it was a, more of an artistic style of riding. 
but I, I would come to discover that later because my first track bike, I definitely had a brake because I'd never ridden or experienced what a fixed wheel is. Mm. And it's a very foreign experience compared to a free wheel. And I remember my, I picked up one from a local bike shop because I was working in a bike shop and Alistair was the bloke and I paid 50 quid for this frame. It was just a bike. I had no idea about sizing. I So I had a like foot and a half of seat post up here is super low down. <laughs> oh, so you got too small. Oh, it was way too small. Well, I didn't care. I've still got it down the shed. It's the one, one frame that I've destroyed and kept. Better smaller than larger. Well, anyway, so I'm riding this bike <laughs> and I remember it, the sensation was like being strapped to a rocket because you put your foot down and... It feels it like exactly goes. it goes. Yeah. And similarly, you can't it wants to keep you going. <laughs> that flywheel effect that So that was that was how I discovered track bikes. And then it made sense like why couriers were riding these bikes, simplified bikes, but also the riding in an urban environment, obviously I love mountain biking. Riding a track bike in an urban environment is the closest thing to that experience you have a mm. flowy single track between cars and around pedestrians and <laughs> up and down curves. So it really transformed, particularly in London where there is no mountain biking close. It made the streets feel like a mountain bike course to me. And that was often how other people would describe that thrill of riding through traffic. And it's a course that's always changing. It's not yeah. a static to- course like your favourite trail that you might know in a park. Um, so that definitely became a big part of the challenge of riding in the city. And you've also got the mental task of like, oh, what have I got to pick up? What have I got to drop off? It's complex that, in that regard. That's something also I wanted to ask you about. And this is a little less about cycling now. It's a bit more about understanding the job is, like you just explained with mountain biking, I can see the actual another correlation there. It's like learning the trails, learning the city. You know, your city, London, you know, New York later on, you were there. They're not your home cities. Like if I was to Koori in Melbourne tomorrow, I think I'd pretty much get around pretty quickly because I know the city that pretty well. But to go to a new city and learn it like the back of your hand, there was no Google Maps then and things like that. How did you navigate around? Well, there was the, the Courier's Bible called the A to Z, which is a little book. And you'd have a mini A to Z, which was a condensed version, which would be fit smaller in your bag. You would have to pull it out. It's like a street directory. A street directory, like your Melway of equivalent in Australia, is a printed street directory. Cool. And the other, look, this is the thing I love about London. It's such a history rich. I mean, there's Roman roads under there and there's fascinating, like the Tower of London. So you're driving through, sorry, riding through this city and there's all these queues of times gone by. Like I remember the first time I delivered to Buckingham Palace. Mm. And it, it, I, even though I was living there, I did feel like a tourist. But it's so organic in the way that the the streets developed. There was no plan. So some of the streets, the numbers go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on one side and come back down on the other. Some of them are more traditional like we have here, odds and evens on either mm. side. There's all these little nooks and crannies and mews. <laughs> and... That's, I would say, the physical part is because London's a relatively like a low-rise city, there are some high-rise. Some days you'd have certain clients that might be on the fourth floor of a building. So every time you'd get that client, you're like, oh, there's another four sets of stairs I've got to do. I I was indefatigable when I was working there. It could not tie me out. (laughs) I was just super, super fit because all day I was riding like 15K to work riding all day, up and down stairs, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, I, I don't know how I did it, but every day you're just like, ah, oh, get out of bed. Can I do it? Yes, I can. 
Yeah, so like bike couriers are super fit in that regard. So there's a lot of walking as well as riding. And so you'd use this map and obviously I started in London. The less you need to rely on the map, the better. But that just came with time. And a lot of, I met cab drivers in London that were working as bike couriers to develop this wow. thing called the knowledge. Black cab drivers. I don't need know if, to know that, don't there they? There was this thing yeah. that black cab drivers not only needed to do this knowledge test, but there's plaques on buildings in London to signify like George Orwell lived here and wrote this book in this time. And it, so I need to know that. You need to know that because as people ask you, well, wow. as a black cab driver, you were kind of like the tour guide huh. as well as the person taking. It's people. an expected level of knowledge. Correct. Correct. And obviously with Uber, that's out the window. Some <laughs> bit, or what, what music station do you want to listen to? <laughs> so yeah. The, the, and a lot of bike couriers would have a, that level of knowledge of, of London, which I loved because yeah. I, when my friends came to visit, I could tell them all about London just by virtue of the fact that I'd ridden around there and I discovered all of these places, much like what would come later with Melbourne Bay. Unless with a bike career, you're told, go here. Mm. Now, you wouldn't organically think, oh, I'm going to go to this backwater in this city just for shits and giggles. Mm. But as a bike career, you were constantly thrown all around the city and randomly you would intersect with other people or other buildings. It, I loved it. I loved it. it every day was a visual delight of like what's going what's gonna to be around the next corner. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the actual little community now because that's sort of gonna, what we're going to talk about now is sort of lead into these races. But I want to understand that community because you did sort of mention a bit of a array of type guys during Korean. There's guys who get target bikes. You just need to earn money goes right through the guys who want to be cool and seen without breaks and everything in between. Is it a real competitive sort of scene or is it like, you know, I'm going to help you out because I know what it's like or I'm just going to let that guy learn the hard way because he needs to earn his stripes. Like like you explained about the pro peloton, people also have gone through it themselves to get to the top. I would- so it's like, hey- you also need to learn the hard way too. Absolutely, I would say it's the latter. I found breaking in. It's like a it's like a pie, and the pie can only be cut into X amount of pieces. Mm. And other bike couriers would see new bike couriers, particularly if they were asking, "Oh, who's hiring at your company?" That would be someone else taking a slice of this pie. Mm. So it was competitive in that sense that. Uh, they were very coy about, oh, no one's hiring at this company. Try this. Mm. Uh, and certainly for a long time, I felt like there was this idea of established riders versus the rookies. And I would have looked like the absolute rookie when I started because I probably wasn't wearing the right gear. I had the this huge vinyl orange bag that <laughs> was given to me by my first messenger company and you had to wear it. <laughs> well, that's what they said. But obviously when you're out in the street, you can do whatever you want. So it and, reeked of amateur. Right? It reeked, absolutely. It was like a big, big flag on my bike saying, <laughs> look at this dickhead. <laughs> a newbie. A newbie. Yeah. So again, uh, it wasn't until I left and met other couriers. Uh, look, and it's one of those things uh, you go to enough races or you, you spend enough time on the street, you see the same people. Because it's a very transient job. It's a very difficult job. People, and I've had many people that love bikes, think, I want to be a bike courier. Mm. They last a week. Some of them don't even last that many days because, Why? like I said, that's riding the bikes is a very small part of it. 
You've got to be patient. You've got to be resilient. Can't pick and choose the nice weather days. Mm. Uh, the classic line in the elevator was when it was terrible weather. I wouldn't want to have your job today. Yeah. And or, unconsequently, if it was a brilliant day, people were like, oh, I'd love to have your job today. But they're not thinking about, like, New York, I worked through the snow. Like, in Vancouver, I worked through, like, icy blizzards and we had, like, 28 days every day it rained. Um, like things like that break most people and again then you'd realize riding the bike is a small part of it turning up every day uh is is the bulk of the job so what gave you the stripes in terms of the view of the other guys and you look down at young guys coming up when you were when you were there and you're like okay that guy gets creds now what was it was it delivering fast was it wearing the right developing your own style was it the bike you rode what sort of gave you creds in that scene and, and moved you up the rungs? Uh, I, d- I think it's a bit all of that. There was a courier company in London called Metro and they were the cool kids. Mm. They had a uniform. Cool. They all looked fast. And I actually managed to snag a pair as I was left. I traded a pair of their long bibs for a T-shirt. Uh, and there's also a bit of that in the messenger culture. Once you get into the family, people would swap company jerseys or um, bags, and this is where, like, the Messenger Championships kind of evolved to. It's celebration of the job. But certainly, uh, you know, cool bikes. Uh, I mean, it's not dissimilar to the world at large. Like, why do you want to associate with someone over there? And, and I think just people seeing you around long enough, like, oh, okay, this guy's or this girl's sticking at it, um, say hello. And I think once you're broken in, you know, one person. And look, you know me, I like to talk to everyone. So, and being an Australian, I had no shame in just talking to everyone and anyone. I think that helped me break in because I'm an extrovert. So, but definitely the cooler bikes, there were some guys that rode rubbish bikes. And I would say even in Melbourne, and I would have a go on their bike. I'm like, how do you even oh, how do, do this? <laughs> how do you enjoy yeah, Exactly. Then at the other end of the extreme, there'd be, and this was particularly, I noticed this in San Francisco, Guys working on blinged out Colnagos with like full C record and and they would ride different bikes each day. They were like bike nerds. Just doing the couring for a hobby. Like, dry, like couring in a Ferrari. And then the next day I'm in my Porsche. And then mm. the next day I'm in my Lotus. So they're almost like discredited in my uh, opinion. Look, it's it's just, like too far. Well, look. I <laughs> understand the job. Well, yeah. So look, for me it was like a happy medium. I only had one bike and I was- traveling out of a backpack around the world Mm. sleeping on couches for a lot of it when i was overseas uh but i was just loved meeting people hearing their stories and discovering all facets of bikes and bike culture stuff that like you you mean you got the show life in the peloton discovering branches of cycling Mm. that i'd never even considered people who were into like building tall bikes or crazy bikes or wacky bikes or people that were interested in transportation alternatives and these people were all kind of there was like a tangle of webs and bike careers seemed to be that subset of cyclists who could kind of jump across um Mm. like the the cowboys that often referenced as or punks because they're very it was a very diy culture in terms of the bike career scene which i also loved they were just interested in making fun and experiences and that really resonated. And you can also, you could wear whatever you mm. wanted to work. Like once I discovered that, like I would just wear the wackiest, craziest stuff 
any day and just really just to start conversation mm. with people, right? Like Develop what your I, own style. Exactly, yeah. developing my own style and obviously um, being an extrovert and that just – I loved just – I used to put um, little cards on my – I'm a bag, which would be conversation starters, like ask me about the weather or, mm. you know, because you're going, again, the job, you're in- interacting with so many people in a client level and also on the street and then also a cafe. So you'd have your favorite cafes all around, spread around the city. You'd have your f- uh, times that you'd hit, like pause and there'd be spots where bike couriers would sit like a group of birds, like, ah, ah. <laughs> and like in, and every city had that. So when I'd go to a new city, discover finding out where that spot was where you could just hang out with the couriers, talk to them, get a, f- a sense of the pulse of like who's hiring, uh, what the city's like. That was part of that becoming part of the family. But obviously, again, yeah. that was only once I'd established myself in the like the culture for a while. Well, let's talk about that because now you're talking about talking to the other couriers and you mentioned it before, being down the pub and, and talking about these races. Um, that was, I think, the, nat- the next natural sort of thought in my mind was surely these guys wanted to race, these guys, these girls, because you guys are all out there, you're competitive about the job, but were you competitive about racing? And I mean like alley cats, what are these races, alley cats? Where's that word come from? Uh, well, I don't know where the alley cat word derives from, but it, it, the first one, based on Wikipedia, which I believe because I'd heard this before, it came out of Toronto, 19, late, late, late 80s. Uh, and it wasn't until, and this is similar to, there's this thing that I heard that the only thing that travels faster than a bike courier is the whispers that they carry or the rumors <laughs> they carry. Now, obviously, there was an event in Toronto in 89 and the first World Championships was in early 90s and that helped spread the seed of these races to other cities around the world. Now, obviously, with the internet... What are are these races first? Like, explain what one is. Well, I'll talk about my first one. It It was at night. It was on a Friday night and after... Like I said, after a few drinks, everyone's a little loose. Uh, we gathered in this dead end street, and Robin Super Kid, who'd or, who's organised the race, it was his idea of the race, and that's the thing. The organiser has their idea of how the race is going to go. This first race, he screams out this thing of an address, and he just said MTV. I'm like MTV. What what does that mean? And I. MTV was an address in Camden. Now, I didn't know that because they weren't a client of mine, Mm. but everyone else knew it. So, they're all scattering, racing, and I just followed. Mm. And this was the – and and they're going full speed in the dark. I had lights on my bike. These guys didn't have lights on their bikes. (laughs) Like, what are you guys are insane. And then we came up to a red light, and I'm starting to slow down, and a guy next to me shouted – what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And I just followed in through this red light. And it was the first time I'd run a red light. I'm like, what the heck just happened? Obviously, there's no cars around. But still, but then I realized, long. oh, this is a race. Oh, you didn't know it was a race? Well, I knew it was a race, but I didn't know what the parameters of, yeah. what, like, uh, is hanging onto cars allowed? Or, like, it, it was just get to point to point to point as fast as you could. That's that's the premise of the race. And and that's for the rest of the race, it was like that. So you got to one checkpoint and at that checkpoint, there'd be someone waiting and they would say, okay, now go to this address, mm-hmm. Trafalgar Square. I'm like, great, there's somewhere I actually know. <laughs> 
And it was like that. So you'd bounce around and it would typically finish at a house or another pub and then you would just celebrate. And that was my first one. And then uh, it was such an, an electric experience. I'm like, oh, I've got to do these again. Because each organiser would – it was like a house party and they would set the tone of like, oh, it's going to be R&B or it's going to be dance or – how would you hear about these races? Were they sort of just the whisper, like you through said, the whispers. whispers through the whispers? Hey, you heard about you know the race on you know next week? Paper flyers, oh. paper flyers. So again, the organizer would have a whole heap of paper flyers in their bag. So they'd go to the the spot, which was either Liverpool Street Station or in uh, it was off Oxford Street. There was a set of steps where they'd all hang out, or they'd distribute them within their career company. And Robin was worked for Creative Couriers which had a really good, I suppose, culture in itself. And from there, to disseminate to like the smaller groups of couriers. And I was obviously on the fringe because I was working for the shitty company. And eventually I heard about it. But once, yeah, once you get connected with these people, like I'd hear about more and more and more. So Could anyone rock up back in these days? In these days, it was only, I don't know that. A, a I just non- say you and I were mates and you were couriering and you go, hey, I actually know a writer. Come along, or you had to be a courier. Well, this is where I differ from a lot of couriers because we can talk about this because I, my first race I held, I opened it to anyone. And that right. was very controversial. Right. A lot of bike couriers felt like, no, 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 no. you got to be a bike courier. you got yeah. to be an earning bike courier to mm. win. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That, I don't know. No, I sort of but, agree that. It's like this is your own sort of secret scene. Sure, sure. Uh, look, look, I'm not being a courier, no, so no, how would I know? No, well, but so initially I would say it was one, and it wasn't broadcast. I think the internet played a mm. massive part in putting, and I suppose I'm responsible again because I had a blog <laughs> and I was putting it out there, but uh, there were very few ways to find about this culture or these races or these track bikes and these cultures outside of being in them Mm. Um, and certainly print media wasn't covering it and like I said occasionally a snippet would turn up on TV but that was super random super random so yeah the the bike courier races of this era was only for bike couriers well things have changed since the old days of pocket street directories Andy and these days I'm cruising around navigating myself with the Wahoo Element Rome GPS bike computer It's weird, because I sort of can't imagine riding without one now. It's a relatively new thing, having a GPS computer right there, but it's almost like, how do we do it without them now? The Wahoo Element Rome GPS bike computer has preloaded global maps. So wherever you go, you're gonna have the maps there right, ready to go. And it's easy to follow routes created with an on-device turn-by-turn navigation. And there's beeping alerts to let you know when you've just coasted past that turn you're supposed to do. Among other features is the auto reroute feature. When, like I said, as soon as you go past that turn, no longer do you have to stop, U-turn and try and go back. You can just get rerouted back on track and continue on your way. Exploring has never been better and no need to get lost. And I find myself finding that many more roads using my Wahoo Element Rome GPS bike computer while I'm out riding. Guys, let's just get back to the episode. Well, let's talk about, if not one of the biggest, the biggest in from what I could understand is Monster Track over in New York City mm-hmm. and how you came to New York City and, and sort of understanding that race. Um, tell me about Monster Track because I've only recently 
found out more about it on the internet. I'm so glad you watched it. And everyone needs to go and watch this. Um, I'll put a link up on the show notes about it because it's it's incredible to see. And the way I describe it is it's hectic enough, but you can imagine yourself doing it that it just sort of encapsulates you like, maybe I could do this. Oh, no, I couldn't. Oh, maybe I could. And I just couldn't turn away from it. It was so engaging. And the way it was filmed was fantastic. Yeah. Tell me about, and I'm assuming there's they're all like this, but this is one that was captured um, that I watched on the internet and got a feeling what this scene was like. Sure. Well, I'll back up. I was working in San Francisco and I'd done the summer there and I worked with, I wanted to work in New York. That was always the plan because again, Robin Superkid, who organized the first alley cat that I went into, I bumped into him one day and I was in Regent Street and we're just, just looking at the traffic go by. And he told me about working in New York. I'm like, you worked in New York? So is New York the Tour de France, London, like the Giro? I don't know. Well, if you look, can do New that York's comparison. New York. It is a beast of a city. Everyone in the world, not everyone in the world, but it's it's regarded as a special because of its size. It's in movies. It's unique in a lot of ways. And for me, being from Australia... I don't know. There's just something about it, like New York. Hmm. So, and Robin said, yeah, I worked in New York. And I'm like, you worked in New York? And he says, yeah, I just went there and um, a mate of mine hooked me up with a job. And then I realized, hang on, I'm an Australian working in London. It's not that much of a leap for me to work in the States. So, that really started to plant that seed. So, anyway, I came back to, after London, I came back to Australia, worked here, went to Canada, worked in Vancouver, worked my way down the coast, San Francisco, and then right, got to New York. And... One of my friends in San Francisco said, right, hook up with my friend Judith. She's going to let you stay. And and Yeti, you can stay on their couch, blah, 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 blah. You'll have a place to stay. I'm like, right, that's all I need. Just one place to stay initially in the city. And I'd made my way over there for the Halloween race. And one of my other good mates, Mike Macker, who's an artist and an Australian that I'd met in Denmark at a Messenger Champs, he was racing this race and I remember the start of the race. I said, Macca, how you doing? His face is painted in Halloween, black and white. He's like, yeah, I've just dropped some acid. And the, <laughs> and the rivers, they're like, no, the, the roads are like rivers of colour. I'm like, you're going to do this race and you've just dropped acid? Uh, look, Mac is an incredibly gifted athlete and pretty loose. And he came, I want to say he came second or third. In, uh, yeah, so... That was my intro into, into writing New York. And I got lost because I didn't know New York. Because how can you – you just mentioned Denmark, right? Mm. And I don't think you were couring up there. I could be wrong. But no. how do you do a competition in a city that you don't know? It just seems like stupid. Because, well, like, how would you even know how where to go? Correct. So, there's two – I would say Monster Track has this audience. There's probably maybe five people that can win it. The rest of the people are just there to mm. experience – and look at – you could extrapolate that to the Tour de France. There's really only five people that mm. can win it. The rest of them are there to, in a support role or making up numbers or etc. Whatever, yeah. They really, and and one, I, I'd been in New York for a while and I kind of had an idea of how to navigate because the first time I was there, it is there are avenues, but I just didn't know which way was south. And you get turned around very quickly because you go in a building, you come out and... 
feels like you get turned around very quickly. Mm. So that was my intro to New York and Monster Track. I'd heard about this Monster Track event, particularly because it was no brakes, track bikes only. Ah, so they had actual rules. There's, that was the only rule that I knew of. So it was a real- So the rest of the, the, rest of the alley cats around the world, whatever you want. We could ride whatever you want. And typically they would have a first track bike category as is as if to say, well, track bikes aren't as fast as road oh, bikes. Oh, they weren't as yeah. fast. So well, a road bike would be faster. Look, it's obviously it, uh, like with the road bike, you can hang onto a car and freewheel and, and freewheel, and you can do 70, 80 k an hour. You know from your, mm. ride, your time riding a track bike, uh, there's a limit. There's a limit to your legs, are, or if you want to over over ride that limit, you take your feet out of the pedals, which is what something. People do, and obviously you can't stop because once the cranks are going that fast, you just can't put your feet back in the pedals. However, <laughs> I've ridden with people, and one of them, Safa Brian, who I want to say either one monster track, check him out. You've probably seen him on YouTube. There's a video of him chasing Tom Pidcock. When I worked with him in the street in Melbourne, I was like, this kid is gifted. This kid is next level. And obviously, that's come true because he is incredible on a bike. There are people who have done stuff on track bikes that I have thought, that's not possible. And you're like, oh, my mind has been expanded. Mm. Like, it is possible. I'm just not capable of it. So, that was look, that was a great thing about doing these races. Just it would open your mind to like what is possible on a bike. And certainly, I had no idea that you could ride a track bike with no brakes, which sounds insane because it is insane. You could ride so quickly through traffic and generally not get injured, generally. Well, tell me about Monster Track then. So, it's it's track bikes only. Track bikes only. Obviously, no brakes. Mm-hmm. Is that all specified or is yes, it just track that, bikes only? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's the – when Snake started the race in 2000, he wanted to obviously create a race that had a real punk, tough element to mm. it and – track bikes no brakes that was the entry point of like okay this is going to be super hard because you're riding a bike with no brakes obviously for people listening there is a mechanism for slowing the bike down <laughs> but it's not a handbrake uh but obviously you have a, a limited capacity to slow the bike so it's a very different riding approach which um which is why we're not we were talking about the race You've got to ride a small gear because if you get on top of a massive gear, you're not stopping mm. for like hundreds of meters potentially. So, um, gearing selection was a big thing because I could have put on a massive stomping gear, blown people away on the avenues, but I wouldn't have been able to slow down. Or if there's a red light, it's really hard to. You would have blown your legs up. Well, it's again, and I suppose from I was learning this too from a, that physiologically what is capable your legs blow up with all the lactic if you're Mm. pushing a monster gear but you can turn a small gear a lot for a long time that's Um, your aerobic system working there you go thank you for correcting me so it's 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 very similar to track weirdly you know we're talking about let's say a point score or a madison probably similar event in a way because it's like you know i can run a monster gear and maybe take a lap but actually, as soon as the race slows down and I can't accelerate with the attacks going, I'm going to lose my – I've got to take a risk here. 
Do I go little because of the way the race is going to go or do I go big because I want to take laps? I don't know. That is exactly, you've nailed it. And I would ride a smaller gear than most people because I just preferred to be able to control a bike mm. and I was more comfortable spinning than I was grinding. And talking about other races in the New York area, I'd go to Brooklyn at nights and ride Prospect Park and they had fixed gear crits around <laughs> the park. And one night for shits and giggles, I put on a massive gear and I just just – blew everyone away because I could get on top of this massive gear and I didn't have to worry about stopping because we're on a circuit. There was car free. But I could never do that in an environment that has cars and pedestrians and the like. What so, did they say when you did that? Like, oh, you got a bigger no, gear it's, on. It's, yeah. it's just the nature of yeah. like, yeah, it, it's just the nature of racing. Like, And you just couldn't put on a big gear well, you could. I just it wasn't. I wasn't comfortable. So I always rode uh, like a sixty-nine gear inch. There's track speak, which is forty-six eighteen. Mm. And also, this is another thing that I didn't consider early days of riding brakeless is the number of skid patches. Because mm. depending on which configuration, you have a certain amount of skid patches. Now, obviously, if you've got two skid patches, you're talking about on the tire. On now. the tire, if you've got two skid patches, you're going to go through tires mm. in no time at all. So you, you, as well as getting a- So in order to get a skid patch, for me to understand this, it's the way that you have your-, your Align your, your cranks. Feet, you align your cranks. So it's more or less going to be the same spot every time. Exactly. Because you can't skid when your cranks are, say, at 12 and 6. Your cranks have got to be more or less at 3 and 9. Is that right? Yes. And typically, you think of someone who's like goofy footed with snowboarding you have a preference mm. to which side you prefer to oppose the crank because that's the way you're slowing the bike down you're opposing the flywheel effect of the the fixed wheel mm. so and to skid which is like your emergency stop if you like is to lock up the rear wheel and and basically s- turn the bike on its side so you, you could, could kind of like snowplow you can stop the bike pretty quickly mm. but certainly well, in the same way that you might grab a fistful of brake and skid your rear reel. So to slow down, there's two ways. You slowly slow it down by resisting the pedal yep. or you skid. Or you skid. And like you said, the skid patches, how do you, when you said there's more than two, how, how does that work? Oh, well, depending on the gearing that you pick. Yeah, right. So there might be two sets of chainring combinations which give you the same rollout but they give you a vastly different number of skid patches. And this was something that I think uh, someone smarter than me worked it out early days of the fixie renaissance, let's call it, of when Hmm. it got super popular in the thousands, of working out a calculator that would calculate the number of skid patches based on the chain rings you were running, wheel size and things like that. So you change chain rings to use more of the tyre? Yeah, or you would. There would be certain combinations that would only give you two, and that would be bad. And I think some of them gave you up to like sixteen, which is obviously sixteen various spots that the tire would rub if oh, you're yeah, skidding. Right, and I, and obviously, when you're riding and skidding, you would try and avoid that because that's it is a controlled way of stopping, but it's less controlled. You would anticipate mm. what's going to happen ahead, and I think bike careers and typically even more so track bike riders would be better at predicting the flow of traffic because instead of reacting to it you're predicting what may happen whereas i think a lot of cyclists on the road they react to the traffic Mm. and certainly there's no other way to develop that skill than 
immerse yourself riding every single day on the road and just observing what people do. What people do. Like you can tell if someone's sitting in a car and they they move their head, they are going to change lanes mm. or they're going to open a door. And you just become really acutely aware of all these little things You're like, oh, that person's going to jump out there. So, so instead of getting closer to them, grabbing a fistful of brake and then getting flustered because you're like, oh, you pulled out of me. I would just ride around stuff and I would see like inexperienced couriers all the time getting pinch points. I'm like, you should have seen that miles ahead. But again, that's just an experience thing. It's you very, see that in the Peloton It's as very well. funny. Yeah, you mentioned that because it's little things like I remember from racing is that in simply using your brakes without even using it, you're, you're feathering your brake the whole day in the middle of a bunch riding, you know, five centimetres away from another yep. wheel in front of you, two centimetres away from the guy next to you, left and right, blah, blah, blah. Yet you're able to do it for four or five hours a day because you're just continually doing stuff without even thinking. Mm. Your hands are an extension of what your brain is wanting you to do. And that, I can imagine for you, is the whole time, now when you're out in the traffic, you're doing stuff that you're not even, oh, I saw that, I saw his head turn, whatever. Okay, you explain that now. But all that stuff is instincts to you now. It's just ingrained. Absolutely. And things like, I mean, I'm telling my daughter this all the time on the bike and I would do this on the street. I would wave to people all the time. People Mm. I didn't know because they would... If I would wave to them, they would. It's that we've we've locked eyes. Mm. They're like, why is he waving at me? What's he going to do? I've got their attention. They're aware of you. They're aware of me, so they're less likely to hit me. And uh, I might have looked crazy. And also, this is a thing that I got from Jamie at Skin Grows Back, um, who's an exceptional rider. He would ride side to side, like like he was like a snake. Warming his tires up in Formula oh, One. Oh, no! But <laughs> I said to him, "Why do you ride side to side?" And he goes, "Because it looks like I'm." crazy and cars will give me more space mm. and it's true if if cars assume that a cyclist is going to hold a line they will ride as close to the mm. to that line as they can but if if they're waving around and it's the same if you see a car driving erratically on the road you're like what are they doing i'm going to give them a bit more space <laughs> look a big part of the job is staying alive my first week in new york i went on a group ride for a messenger that was killed in the bike lane riding um, I think he was car doored by a cop and I'd been car doored before and in Collins Street and had my foot run over and it's one of those things you don't like to think about it but it's it's a reality of being on the road regardless of being a bike courier as a cyclist the consequences of us being in an accident are far greater than road vehicles well let's talk about that now because we're talking about monster track and you know taking the risks and trying mm. to win the race mm. I guess that scene, like we we spoke about, it is an element of cool and, you know, having the bikes and the track bikes, no brakes and taking the risks to sort of put you up the rungs of the level of coolness and things like that. In the industry, there's elements of, you know, becoming second nature, but what was the dangers and the dangers over, over your years of experience in that, what you saw and ultimately... Did that turn you away from it? Look, I watched those videos and I, I can't ride like that anymore. One, because you're just riding like an arsehole in breach of all the road rules. But when I was young, I, I was all about doing whatever it took to win because it was, I suppose, like a trophy in the sense of the, in the, sense of the Tour de France. It was the marquee event to show who was the fastest in the biggest city in the world on a track bike. And so there's definitely a cool element to it. And there was a bit of money, which was um, obviously an incentive as well. <laughs> um, and it was ruthless to win it. And it was like, I suppose it was just the peak event that attracted people from all around the world to win this event. And that was the thing that drew me to it. 
and it was in New York and it was in the middle of winter. People don't or may not realize this, but the years that I rode, it was freezing. Like, oh, and there's been events where it's been in the snow. Um, so again, it just added to the mystique of like, mm. this is the hardest illegal street race to win. And that's what attracted to me at early days. And really when, when I was doing it, it was only it's in its fifth and sixth editions. So, and it's still going. But now when I look back, um, I loved being a participant in those type of events because I felt that I was taking uh, responsibility for the risk. But as an organizer, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I would not feel comfortable encouraging people to ride in that manner. And mm. obviously that comes with time and age. So, yeah. And, and so certainly in terms of building an event, it's going to meet uh, a ceiling of you can't have an event that big where people are doing that many breaches. It'll just eventually attract heat. But the funny thing about watching that video in New York is it reminded me, New York's such a big city and countless times you see them running red lights in front of the police. I remember the first time I rolled through a red light in New York and you're just like a fly. People don't care. There's bigger things to worry about. There's bigger things, right? And it's like the rule of the ocean. You're the small little fish. You get out of the way of the big fish. The big fish will eat you every time. So Mm. that's, and again, that's the thing that makes New York, New York. It's special because it's a city on scale of, proportions that few others can boast about yeah so well tell me about 2006 then because that was your year at monster track that was your yarn moment second <laughs> second again <laughs> second again yeah so i've done it uh previously come second i'm like oh wow second and i don't even really know the city that well and there was a bit of a stuff up with a checkpoint where i couldn't find it so i'm like oh, i might have a sniff here so the second year, I was living in Vancouver with my girlfriend at the time, Melody, and I, st- I actually trained for it. Like I would go out to this long stretch. In- trained for it? Yeah, I know. And look, I love cycling, but I'd never trained for anything. I just rode bikes. Um, and I was doing like hill efforts up this long stretch and cold. And it, so I was, I was focused as well as focused for me at the time. And I remember trying to pack my bag and bike for the trip. My front fork had like seized in my bike because we got salt and you got water and everything. It was like seized. I'm like, I'm not even going to be able to make it there because I can't even put my bike away. So I struggled with the bike, finally got it in there. Turned up in New York. Now this- Oh, so you weren't even living there then? No, no, I'd I'd made the flight. I said to Melody, I said, it's going to cost me 500 bucks to go, but it's $1,000 if I win and I know I'm going to win. There's no one faster than me. Mm. I was absolutely- dead set confident she's like all right sounds like a good adventure <laughs> so i went for the weekend and plus it was going to be fun uh, it's look it's it's new york again it's just an excuse to go yeah. to new york and because i knew people i had a place to stay like mm. it, it, things got easier with time and it started in harlem at marcus garvey park which i think is up like 130th street and the first checkpoint was like you're on top of this big rock rocky hill and it's icy and you had to lock your bike up on the street down below. And when they dropped the start, you had to run down these steps. You had to like run 200 meters precariously over ice, rock to get to your bike, unlock it, jump on. And then it was a hundred blocks straight line. And I think you noticed this when you looked at the Strava. Mm. Like, oh, the race is kind of like 
big drag race up and then you go across and then big drag yeah. race down. So it, I thought it was just like left, rights everywhere, but it's actually no, quite so a lot of straights. Yeah, the avenues, it was down Fifth Avenue. So you're going past Tiffany's, you're going past- Put the TT bars on. The Empire <laughs> State. Anyway, within the first couple of blocks, Felipe, who is known as the king of New York, he typically didn't ride a track bike and he'd gone to bunny hop this these roadworks. There's a big hole in the road and he'd forgotten that you can't stop pedaling and he just eaten shit right How in the middle of the road. How did he forget that if he was the... Because no, he's used to riding a single speed or a road bike. Oh, right. So, so he just he pulled just, the track he out pulled, for the day. Exactly. He's like, right, I want to win Monster Track. Eh, he probably did a few baggies before the start. He's that kind of guy. And <laughs> go. Yeah. Anyway, I'm like, great. He's, he's out. out of it. Gone. And another an incredible athlete, Austin Horse, about 10 blocks later, he's gone wide Rear wheels hit a curb, bam, I hear it pop, tire, like right. He's out. He's out. There's only one guy I had to beat and he beat me last year. I'm like, but I know I've got this guy. So, you, everyone's not taking really the same route, are they? Or you well, sort no, of are? The, the, yeah, no, no. The, well, 100 blocks straight line, everyone's yeah. going the same okay. way. So, you're all in a sort of a weird peloton. Weird peloton. But I started slow, but I was just picking my way through because I just, I wasn't worried about um, getting the the best start off the I knew I just reel people in. I just mm. knew I did knew I would. And we got into Midtown and I can see the rider ahead of me and he's just getting a better run of the lights and I'm getting impeded. You know, it's like it's a long race. There's plenty of time. Everyone's behind me. Like the two other threats are out of the game. And I would jumped across to West Side Highway and I'm riding along and then this limo pulls out in front of me. I'm like, oh that was lucky, and I moved over to the right, and I look on the back of the limo, and it's Felipe holding on to the back of this limo, like onto the towing to the wing, thing towing, or called, yeah. towing, and legs spinning madly. I'm like, my god, damn it! This, guy, I mean, he is an incredible uh, racer, and just I'm like, all right, did you get on? I didn't get on, and he just like slowly pulled away because obviously he's getting a tow. I'm like, right, well, this race is still definitely on, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, the format of the race is you go up and down and zigzag. And as you've seen with New York, the avenues are six cars wide. You've got ample room to kind of mm. wander through. The cross streets are really narrow and hectic and uh, they go either east to west or vice versa. Anyway, the final checkpoint is typically at this bar in Brooklyn. And I just knew that... I was going to have to do something equally as crazy as Felipe to win. So on, you were behind, or you hadn't I was seen where he was? He was up, yeah, I could see him up the road. And instead of taking the pedestrian bike path across Williamsburg Bridge, I'm like, I'm, I'm going gonna, on the bridge. I'm going on the freeway. I'm riding on the freeway with the cars. <laughs> is that illegal? Of course, it's not illegal. But this no, is the illegal. thing. Illegal. It's yeah. illegal. Like, but this is the thing. Yeah, yeah. This race is no whatever. Rules. Yeah, yeah. Except for track bikes, no rules. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. And uh, so I leaned out in front of this car. Crazy idea. Slow the, him down to slow this SUV down. Honked, and as I've pulled out of its way, I've grabbed onto its side door, and it's just launched me. Oh no! And I've gone right past Felipe because I'm holding on, spinning madly across Williamsburg Bridge for as long as I. I'm like holding on, holding on. Like, all right, it's going to be doing 60 soon. My legs can't go that fast on this limited gear. Doing like 200 revs per Correct. minute. So I let go. But I'd passed Felipe. I'm like, right, back in the hunt. So now you're out of Manhattan. 
Yeah, so you, yeah, so that format of the race that you looked at was all in Manhattan. Typically, the events that I went to finished in Brooklyn. So mm. you'd always have a bridge or two. And I've done many races where there's bridges involved. And it's fun because riding across the bridges is amazing. And you're in, and Well, because it's hilly or... Well, it is a big, like, long hill and there's also a long, long descent. It's just... I mean, and it's the visual, like either yeah. Brooklyn Bridge or Williamsburg Bridge. You're riding and you look back and there's Manhattan. You've got this beautiful aspect of it. Anyway, as it turns out, I still I lost by half a block because as I was approaching, I just saw the winner up the road. I'm like, oh. So it wasn't second. Felipe? It wasn't Felipe. No, no, I knew Felipe was, wasn't going to win, but he would be a serious so threat. So someone else was in front of you? Yeah, but as, it would, as I would discover from a third party, that person coordinated their own toe across the bridge oh. to win. <sighs> and I'm feeling like that's cheating. And then I realized, well, it is cheating, or maybe it's not in the spirit, but you look back at the early Tour de France and you hear about these yeah. stories about riders jumping in the trains between stages, getting lifts and like, and it, like, in a way, it's part of that beautiful narrative of like, what makes the event special is like, well, remember that year when mm. someone's, yeah, so I uh, came second twice uh, again. Uh, and then there's a party at the finish. And look, it's great because it got me, it gave me an opportunity to go back to New York and, I'm all. I'd always look for an opportunity to go back because it's just such an, a great city, and I I just wish when I was there I'd ride. I had ridden more like up and down Park Avenue, mm. or like. And every time I watch a movie now, I'm like, I know where that is. Mm. I know what that address is. I've been in the bottom of that building. <laughs> I've been up the top of the building, like Empire State Building, because it's so old. You can open the windows <laughs> and look out, like. Imagine doing that in the Rialto or a building. Freaky. It's, yeah, it's freaky. Um, can't so, even do that out of a hotel three floors correct, up. Correct, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But And, like, I got the opportunity to go into the cries of the building. So, again, I just love to be in New York because it's New York. Mm. It's the postcard. It's in all the movies. Yeah. And, and so, Austin Horse, if you've seen there's a movie out called Premium, Ru- Premium Rush that kind of focuses a bit on bike career culture, he was the stunt rider in that movie right. so and he went on to be a red bull athlete he's a great guy and yeah look monster track brought is that event that brings all the heads and the hitters together mm. and i definitely wanted to be part of it for that alone let's talk about now where you're at because coming out of that you can hear your passion for these events and maybe it got the the mind sort of ticking that when you came back to australia like hey i need to bring some of these events back to melbourne i don't know how did it come to fixomatosis this idea of running your own sort of events, building your own brand back here in Melbourne. Yeah, so, I mean, I was buying and selling track bikes because people would see me on these bikes and they're like, oh, oh I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, mm. like, what's it about? What's, why would you want one gear when you can have 10? And I think once people, it's, it's very similar to e-bikes now. Once people throw a leg over, they're like, oh, I get it. And track bikes was very much like that. And then there was the cool aesthetic as well so i was buying and selling bikes and radiohead dropped an album and there was a track called mixomatosis in it and i'd lost a rabbit as a kid to mixomatosis i'm like i'll swap it for an f fixomatosis because i liked this idea that i was building bikes for people and i was infecting people with this Mm. track bike disease like and it was a real gateway drug as i would later discover (laughs) to maybe they wouldn't get into track racing it would get them into bikes. It mm. was like skate skating in the sense that like this is a way into this subculture 
and maybe they're not into fixed gears, but they might pick up a cross bike or mm. a road bike or a mountain bike. It was just that entry point, and that's how I suppose the initial days of my brand started, just buying and selling track bikes for people because they're like, oh, I've heard about these bikes. They look really cool, stripped down, mm. and I was customising them for people and selling them around the world, and I think that's what really helped spearhead um, my brand because no one else was doing it. There was probably three blogs centering around track bike culture, old school track in New York, fixed gear gallery, and my own blog. Mm. And obviously I was also documenting these events that had been to around the world, monster track, working in other cities in Vancouver and San Francisco. So I suppose it was stuff that we take for granted now, but I was just doing it like in the early thousands. Yeah, because we saw this sort of explosion. The only time that I really became aware of it was around early, you know, later in 2000, around 2008, 2009. Friends of mine were starting to ride, you know, fixed gear bikes. It became sort of cool, yeah. you know, and I guess you were aware of that because you were the one sort of supplying everyone with it. But tell me about that sort of, you know, every Joe Blow, in a, in a sense, being able to ride fixed gears and it becoming um, sort of cool in a way. Was it, I guess, for you nice to see, but maybe to the the subculture of the bike messengers, they were like, hey – you guys aren't the originals. This is, you know, did they like that? You know, everyone riding these bikes now on the streets? I don't know. D- didn't ask or didn't really care because, like, I was in Australia and mm. you could count every person riding a track bike on the street in one hand back then. And interestingly, it was a really special time because if I'd see another track bike on the street or locked up, I'd like, that's so-and-so. Mm. He's there. So I literally knew everyone by their bike and it was it was intimate. And obviously very quickly, and certainly I think because I was putting stuff on the internet and the bike that I had, had bullhorn bars. One of my friends, Akeem, who's got a bike shop now in Berlin, he looked and he's like, cool bike, but those those handlebars are whack. Mm. I'm like, really? And subsequent early companies that started putting out fixies all had those handlebars. Mm. And I'm like, right. They've obviously seen, looked at what's happening online and like right where this is a product we need to copy it we need to mass produce it and that was a couple of years down the road that's when i lost interest in it because i thought this has jumped the shark effectively Mm. but those early days um it was really exciting because people were amped about these bikes um it was they were stripped down and like you would you were looking at them and so i remember that in melbourne there's a there was a spot called 440 Collins where all the bike crews would just hang out. And I was working with Billy Joe and he looked at my bike. He's like, I used to ride a track bike. I'm like, oh, I didn't think anything of it. Now, years down the line, I would realize, oh, you used to ride a track bike and broke the world record in the team pursuit hmm. at the world championships. You didn't just ride, but he was super humble. But um, he would say to me, he said, I've never seen anyone ride a track bike on the street like you, the way you did. And hmm. I think... That was a big part of it too because I'd known people who were just ambling along, just dare I say it, posing out in track bikes. I suppose I was really ripping and mm. shredding on a track bike, pushing them to the limit of what you could do. Um, but I didn't really care. I was just happy to see that people were discovering bikes, getting into it and, I mean, growing the scene, I suppose. Tell me about then the sort of idea of bringing your experience from doing other events around the world into Melbourne. And, you know, most famously, I don't know how far along it was when you had this idea, Melbourne Roubaix, bringing the two loves of, 
you know, in my opinion, the, the greatest bike race in the world to almost like an alley cat mm. um, combining both, you know, the, the, the European scene with the street sort of scene and anyone can do it. That beautiful connection, the way you explain it is you just you're combining all these different subcultures. You know, I can do it as an ex-pro yet. You know, my mate who just rides with his son, he can do it as well. It's it's a beautiful combination and everyone actually, for the love of bikes, you know, that's really what it is, isn't it? It, it really is. And so the first event I put on was called the St. Francis Fun Ride. And again, this comes back to with organisers have their idea of what's cool in an alley cat race. And the fun ride was a combination of you had to visit checkpoints, you had to collect things in a scavenger hunt sense, you had to visit certain places, and then you had to make it your way back to a pub. It was the tote, as it turned out. And then I ran a drag race. The flyer was actually Danny Clark, um, world famous track racer, and it was a straight drag race. But the, I wonder why you explain that race. Was it peak hour down Punt Road? No, in it was Melbourne, like six. It? it was six o'clock from St Kilda Junction to the Northcote Social Club. So you just basically rode six o'clock p.m. Yeah, at night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's pretty much well, it's peak, kind of just after peak, peak hour. hour. Yeah, yeah. So straight line, so no navigating at all. And I suppose uh, each event, I would, I was getting a sense of what I liked, what was engaging, what I what I thought worked. And it's, I suppose it's the way you, creatively, because Melbourne Roubaix is definitely a creative expression of my own and my own loves and what cycling has given to me mm. by other people putting on events that I'm like, that is so cool. I want to share that coolness with other people and them experience it. So I think the first Alley Cat that I organised was called Seven Day of the deadly sins and it was this each of the sins so you got sloth you got sin you got lust so i think the lust was like a strip joint you had to go to the gluttony was a pizza joint where you had to eat like two pieces of pizza i was gonna say two pizzas yeah so like but again it was a theme yeah a theme and then other uh, the next race i organized in vancouver was st valentine's race massacre and the thing was if you won it one year the next year you had to host it Mm. and that was the first year i opened it up to anyone and i got so much grief from the bike crews no you got to be a bike career to enter this Mm. race like nah nah it's just a i just want to put on a party for people and Mm. and also there's bike alley cats that are either at night or in day or you can have a known course or you can have a surprise course or you can have a mix of with that you've got to go to certain places anyway trevor this young punk skater kid won not a bike courier oh there were tears there's proper <laughs> tears and this is the thing that i loved about it so there was a checkpoint remotely on one of the little islands in vancouver there was a hotel you had to go there and the, the question was, what's the name of the doorman at the hotel? Well, Trevor just called the hotel. I'm like, that is, that's genius. Some people saw that as cheating because but- he didn't physically go there. But he answered the question. I'm like, mate, you're the fastest courier right here because you're smartest. Mm. And I look, obviously there was a lot of huffing and puffing because the <laughs> fastest guy didn't win. But uh, And look, it taught me a lot to how people can interpret a question and think laterally. And I love that. So, again, each time I've put on an event, I've learned something. Mm. And Melbourne Roubaix is, I suppose, the culmination of those things. And also, just because I'm me. So, when, when I came back from London, one of my mates, Finn, told me about this really tough ride to do. It's called the Hell Ride. 
I'm like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, it's really fast. They start at Black Rock and they go all the way down to Frankston and back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to turn up one day, skate helmet, cut off jeans on my track bike. And I turned up and I did it. Anyway, obviously, I was uh, the black sheep in, in the peloton of road bikes. And who's this guy on this? He, he looks like a loose, loose cannon riding this track bike. How's he going to stop? Uh, and I H- did it. Did how'd it. you go? Oh, fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was spinning like ridiculously, Crazy. but I did it. And I think people have subsequently tried and haven't been able to get around. Because it was, look, it's super hard on a track bike, obviously. Can you imagine doing the hell ride on a track bike on a tiny gear? Anyway, so I'd done that. And then I was racing like mountain bike crits. And then I was going to critical mass. I was just immersing myself in all the different subcultures of cycling. And that's how people were connecting with my brand. So when I put on an event, the first year, I had people from all of these mm. little collectives coming together. So the first year, I remember speaking to Matt Keenan on SEN the night before about how many people I'd turn up. And I was like, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe 100. And Matt's like, nah, I definitely think you're going to get 100. And 100 people turned up and it blew my mind. I just put it was flying, putting up paper flies in cafes and on my website. I'm like, wow. And that would, it was so you had bike careers in one corner, you had roadies in one corner, the Lycra set, and then you had mountain bikers in one career, and they're all just hanging out, mm. talking and enjoying that. Whereas typically if you went to a crit and you turned up on a mountain bike, what's he doing here? Yeah. So it, it was a unique, uh, again, I suppose, again, it just comes down to an expression of my personality of bringing those people together, making them all feel that they've got a right to be there. And as you said now, it's gone on. This is the 16th edition. I've just been to my first Melbourne Bay. I've been a fan of it. You've had a, a sector in your honour for like countless years. <laughs> yes. But I've got to experience it myself. And just to see the sheer amount of people, you know, I think you had you know, 2,000 people there this year. It's not just about the numbers, but it's just about for me to see the what the event and what this style of event gives to people. Like exactly what you said, it's not it's not a criterion, which is great too. It's not a road race, which is <laughs> great. great. Yeah. They're all great. They're all great. But this was just the culmination of just all these subcultures coming together and being able to talk bikes and experience it and, and travel through. And that's what I really wanted to sort of uncover today in the pod was let's go back to one of the original hardcore alley cats, mm. where it comes from, the, this this subculture of, you know, courier, bike messaging, and you, how you've sort of just been out of absorb everything and then put it into one spot with Melbourne Roubaix. Well, it's joy. It's bicycle joy is is the overriding theme mm. you everywhere you look people are laughing they're smiling and i like again i learned that from the first year it, melbourne Bay was a race i gave prizes for first the second year i gave prizes and then i realized i'm rewarding the fastest person but that means that and i mean you must have experienced this with cycling it's the someone said to me it's the most losingest sport in the world because mm. one person wins and everyone else loses and I didn't like that. So I thought, mm. how can I create an event where everyone goes and everyone wins mm. and the experience is winning and whether it's winning a random prize that you made a cool costume, you win or that's your level of competition or you just got lucky and you won. And as soon as I removed the prizes for going fast, had greater female participation, people started riding slower and not caring about mm. making it to the finish by a certain time. 
And then I started putting in little side events, which would encourage people to slow down. And the more that I did that, obviously the, the greater the participation broadened and in, it's inherently safer, which is great. And here we are 16 years later, like there's very few events that are this big and have been running this long and are still people are still amped to come back each year because I change the route and the theme in a sense each year. So people can go, oh, I remember the muddy year. I remember this year. Oh, I remember that year when you did this. And Mm. so it is every year it's an event, it's a gig, but the set list changes, Mm. right? Because as much as I love my favourite bands, if they played the same set list every year, I'm like, I don't need to see them again. I've that's enough. I went, yeah. Enough. But things have happened outside of my control, but I think I've created a playground for people to fill that space. For mm. example, you know, we're both parents and we've got busy lives. It's become that event like that lots of groups of mates will connect and like, let's do this together because it's not a race. We can stop at a pub or stop at a cafe. We can have fun. We can ride bikes. Uh, as our kids get older, our kids can ride with them. us. Yeah. yeah, and you can see that journey. I remember one year a dad came up to me in the end and said, this has been the best year ever because for the first time my son could have a beer with me at the pub. He's been doing <laughs> it for five years. And little things like this, I just when I started, I never would have considered what joy that was possible beyond just the competitive racing, right? Because that's where I started. Mm. Win at all costs, that's the only thing that matters is winning. But actually, there's there's plenty of domains to do that. There's very few domains where it's encouraged to be wacky, be silly. doesn't matter if you get lost. Um, you can win prizes, you know, all of these things. Well, you, you sort of set the platform for how you want to interpret it. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. my house party yeah. and this is what I think is cool. Uh, if you don't like it, don't come. But obviously, 16 years later, so many people think it's <laughs> a pretty good. Well, some people say it's the best day ever. That's a big call. Um, but yeah, again, it's my interpretation. And because I've, I've fostered silliness, mm. I've fostered people making wacky bikes, dressing up, um, doing kind things for people like stuff that are in my own life that I think is cool. Mm. I remember uh, there was an alley cat in Seattle I did where a guy rode on rims, no tires, just rode on rims. So he's skating sideways. And I just thought that is the wildest thing ever. The fact that I am relaying it to you, he created something, a visual spe- spectacular for everyone else mm. in spite of the fact that he might've like hurt himself. And I've loved that about what people do for Roubaix. They're just creating an experience for everyone else and themselves because they get to be silly, but everyone else gets to enjoy it. Um, and that, look, that's that's evolved. Uh, obviously, the first year was 100 and then it was 200 and then it was 400. And, cool. and then it got to a point of like, okay, it's big enough. It's getting too – it has the potential to be too congested. I want to be doing this, dare I say it, to the day I die. Yeah, so I want to keep bringing people joy through the event. And I hope you continue to do it with – and one day I hope all three of your kids do it 
because that will be a different Roubaix to the Roubaix previous for you, you know? Well, Andy, watch this space for everyone who's listening. And if you haven't done, get out here to Melbourne and experience Melbourne Roubaix. And uh, I hope you bring back some uh, some of the little other little events you've been doing. I've done Tour of Melbourne as well, which was a great little event. Because for me, that resonated more of what you were talking about with the, the Alley Cats, sort of trying to navigate your way through the city and understand these different clues. And that was a great event too. So... Andy, we could keep talking all day long and we still need to go out and ride so yeah. I can put you to the sword on the trails. Yeah. <laughs> well, someone suggested that I do we do this podcast on the gorge trails. I don't think with the bird calls in the background would have been a great idea. Would have. But uh, let's get out on our bikes and um, have some more time out in the sun. Thanks for chatting with me. Welcome. Well, guys, what a banger. What a bit of a sidetrack, you know, a different sort of scene, but all in the name of what we're talking about here at Life in the Peloton. Bikes, bike culture, racing. I sort of love that it just sort of weaveled its way in. It was so interesting for me. I really did enjoy talking to Andy, and he is a great friend of mine, and we do chat a lot when we're out riding. It was great to sort of have an excuse to go to his place, record a pod, go for a cheeky mountain bike afterwards as well. Andy, thanks for being on the pod. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing his stories too. If you haven't done Melbourne Roubaix, you've got to do that. Get out here, fly in, do it, whatever. I highly recommend it and I'll be there next year too. Big thanks goes out to our major partner, Rafa, Will Jones, who puts these episodes together for me, the Life in the Peloton team, Megan Spurlow behind the scenes, and of course, you guys for listening. If you liked Andy, we've got a talking luft with him next week. If you haven't checked his website out, go and check out Fixo. He's got heaps of cool stuff over there. And I wanted to test him. How good is his style? How good is his culture? Well, guys, that's next week over on Talking Luft. So, guys, until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.